Chapter Twenty One of the Four Faces by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty One, A Channel Mystery. Nobody could have seemed more friendly or more thoroughly pleased to see me again than Hugesson Gastrell, as he grasped me heartily by the hand, expressing surprise at our meeting so unexpectedly. On the night I had talked to him at Cumberland Palace, when I was masquerading for the first time as Sir Aubrey Belston, I had experienced a growing feeling of revulsion against him, and now as he took my hand the same feeling returned, and I could not dispel it for the thought had flashed in upon me. Could it be that I was shaking hands with a man whose hand was stained with blood? I had, of course, no proof that Gastrell had committed murder, but in face of what Harold Logan had told Sir Roland Challoner and myself upon his deathbed, added to the other things I knew, it seemed well within the bounds of possibility that— "'And are you crossing to France?' he inquired, cutting my train of thought. "'Yes,' I answered mechanically. "'Going to Paris?' "'Yes. Why, how capital!' he exclaimed. "'You must make one of our party on the boat, and when we land. Connie Stapleton will be delighted to meet you again, Sir Aubrey. She is on this train, and so are other mutual friends. Connie was speaking of you not half an hour ago.' "'Indeed,' I said, feeling that I must say something. "'Why, yes. Try one of these cigars, Sir Aubrey,' he added, producing a large gold case from his inside breast-pocket. I had to take one, though I hated doing it. I tried to look him in the face as I did so, but I couldn't. It was not that I feared he might recognize me, for I did not. Experience had proved to me that my disguised appearance and voice were most effectual. But there was something about the man that repelled me, and I hated meeting his gaze. The noise of the train caused us presently to relapse into silence, and, picking up my newspaper, I tried to read. My thoughts were too deeply engrossed, however, to allow me to focus my attention on the printed page. Could it really be possible, was what I kept wondering, that this smooth-spoken, pleasant-mannered man was actually a criminal? Again Harold Logan's dying eyes stared into mine. Again I saw him struggling to speak. Again I heard those ominous words, almost the last words he had spoken before his spirit had passed into eternity. Hugesson Gastrell. Don't forget that name, Sir Roland. You may some day be glad I told it to you. I shuddered. Then I remembered Preston's warning and the part I had to play. Up to the present Gastrell suspected nothing. Of that I felt positive. But let the least suspicion creep into his brain that I was not the man he believed he had been speaking to. Instantly I pulled myself together. For Dulcie's sake, even more than my own, I must exercise the utmost care. Her life, as well as mine, might depend upon the skill and tact I must exercise during the next few hours, possibly during the next few days. I felt I would at that moment have given much to be able to look into the future, and know for certain what was going to happen to me, and, most of all, to Dulcie, before I returned to England. Well it was for my peace of mind that that wish could not be gratified. On board the boat, rather to my surprise, in view of what had happened and of what Gastrell had just said to me, I saw nothing of Gastrell or of any of his companions, including Preston. 
Apparently one and all must have gone to their cabins immediately upon coming on board. It was a perfect night in the channel. Stars and moon shone brightly, and a streak of light stretched away across the smooth water until it touched the sky hue far out into the darkness. For a long time I stood on deck, abaft the funnel, smoking a cigar, and thinking deeply. I had turned for a moment for no particular reason when I thought I saw a shadow pass across the deck, then vanish. I saw it again and then again. Stepping away from where I stood, hidden by a lifeboat, I distinctly discerned three figures moving noiselessly along the deck, going from me. Curiosity prompted me to follow them, and to my surprise I saw them disappear one after another down the hatchway leading to the steerage. As they must, I felt certain, have come out through the saloon door, this rather puzzled me. It was past midnight when at last I went below. The saloon, smoking-room, and alleyways were deserted and almost in darkness. No sound of any sort was audible but the rhythmic throbbing of the engines. The boat still traveled without the slightest motion. Hark! I stopped abruptly, for I had heard a sound. It had sounded like a gasp. Hardly breathing, I listened intently. Again I heard it, this time more faintly. It had seemed to come from a cabin on my left, a little further forward. I stood quite still in the alleyway for several minutes. Then, hearing nothing more, I went on to my own cabin. But somehow, try as I would, I could not get to sleep. For hours I lay wide awake upon my bunk. What had caused that curious sound, I kept wondering, though I tried to put the thought from me. And who had those men been, those three silent figures passing like specters along the deck, and what had they been doing, and why had they gone down into the steerage? I suppose I must at last have fallen asleep, for when I opened my eyes the sea had risen a good deal, and the boat was rolling heavily. Pulling my watch from beneath my pillow, I saw that it was nearly four. We were due into port at Dieppe before four. The timbers of the ship creaked at intervals. The door of my cabin rattled. I could hear footsteps on deck and in the alleyway beside my door. "'Have you heard the dreadful news, sir?' a scared-looking steward said to me as I made my way towards the companion ladder half an hour later. I had taken care to adjust my disguise exactly in the way that Preston had taught me to. "'No, what?' I asked, stopping abruptly. "'A saloon passenger has hanged himself during the night.' "'Good God!' I exclaimed. "'Who is it?' "'I don't know his name. He was in number thirty-two, alone.' Thirty-two? Surely that was a cabin in the alleyway where I had heard the gasps, not far from my own cabin. "'Are you certain it was suicide?' I asked. "'Oh, it was suicide, right enough,' the steward asked, and he must have been hanging there for some hours by a rope. Seems he must have brought the rope with him, as it don't belong to the boat. He must have come aboard intending to do it. My mate, he found him not half an hour ago, and it so scared him that he fainted right off. Have you seen the poor fellow? What was he like? Yes, most amazing thing, sir, the steward continued volubly. But it seems he disguised himself. He got on a wig and false mustache and whiskers. All the blood seemed to rush away from my heart. Everything about me was going round. I have a slight recollection of reeling forward and being caught by the steward, but of what happened after that, until I found myself lying on a sofa in the saloon with the ship's doctor and the stewardess standing looking down at me, 
I have not the remotest recollection. The boat was rolling and pitching a good deal, and I remember hearing someone say that we were lying off Dieppe until the sea should to some extent subside. Then, all at once, a thought came to me which made me feel sick and faint. While I had been unconscious, had the fact been discovered that I, too, was disguised? I looked up with a feeling of terror, but the expression upon the faces of the ship's doctor and of the stewardess revealed nothing, and my mind grew more at ease when I noticed that the few people standing about me were strangers to me. I saw nothing of any member of the group of criminals I now felt literally afraid to meet until the Paris Express was about to start. More than once I had felt tempted to alter my plans by not going to Paris or by returning to England by the next boat. But then Dulcie had risen into the vision of my imagination, and I had felt I could not leave her alone with such a gang of scoundrels. I might be leaving her to her fate were I to desert her now. No, I had started upon this dangerous adventure, and at all costs I must go through with it, even though I no longer had poor Preston to advise me. Ah, Sir Aubrey, we have been looking for you. I turned sharply to find at my elbow Connie Stapleton and Doris Lorimer. The latter stood beside her friend, calm, subdued. Mrs. Stapleton was in her usual high spirits and greeted me with an effusive handshake. Huey told us you were on board, she said, and he says you are going to stay at our hotel. I am so pleased. Now you must dine with us tonight. No, I won't take a refusal, she added quickly, as I was about to make some excuse. We shall be such a cheery party, just the kind of party I know you love. There was no way of escape, at any rate for the moment. Later I must see what could be done. My desire now was to keep, so to speak, in touch with the gang, and to watch in particular Dulcie's movements, yet to associate on terms of intimacy with these people as little as possible. We hadn't been long in the train, on our way to Paris, when someone, it was Dulcie who first spoke of it, I think, broached the subject which had created so much excitement on board, the suicide of the disguised stranger. I wonder if his act had any bearing upon this robbery which is said to have been committed on board between Newhaven and Dieppe a man whom I remembered meeting at Connie Stapleton's dinner-party, presently observed. I suddenly remembered that his name was Wollaston. "'Robbery!' I exclaimed. "'I've heard nothing about it. What was stolen? And who was it stolen from?' "'Well,' he answered, "'the stories I have heard don't all tally, and one or two may be exaggerated. But there is no doubt about the robbery of Lady Fitzgram's famous diamonds, which I have always heard were worth anything between thirty and forty thousand pounds. She was coming over to stay at the embassy and had them with her, it seems, in quite a small dressing-bag. I am told she declares she is positive the stones were in the bag, which was locked when she went on board at Newhaven. Yet early this morning they were missing, though the bag was still locked. The theory is that during the night someone must by some means have forced an entrance to the cabin. They declare the cabin door was locked, but of course it can't have been in which she and her maid slept, have unlocked the bag, and extracted the jewels. Lady Fitzgram was travelling alone with her maid, I am told, he ended, but Sir Aubrey Belston travelled with her part way from London to Newhaven. You are talking to Sir Aubrey at this moment, Connie Stapleton said quickly. She turned to me. Sir Aubrey, let me introduce Mr. Wollaston. I beg your pardon, Wollaston stammered. I had no idea. 
I know you by name, of course, but I have not before, I believe, had the pleasure of meeting you. It was Huey Gastrell, whom I expect you know, who told me he had seen you in Lady Fitzgram's compartment on the way to Newhaven. I suppose Lady Fitzgram didn't by any chance speak to you of her jewels, say she had them with her, or anything of that kind? She didn't say a word about them, I answered. Is she on this train? Yes, Gastrell has gone to suggest to her that she should stay with us at the Continental, and— Sir Aubrey has just decided to stay there, Mrs. Stapleton interrupted, and I have proposed that tonight we should all dine together. Conversation then reverted to the suicide and the robbery and as Connie Stapleton's friends who shared the private car entered it, she introduced them to me. They seemed pleasant people enough, and, as the subject of conversation did not change, one after another they propounded ingenious theories to account for the way the robbery might have been committed. I noticed that they spoke less about the alleged suicide, and that when the subject was broached they confined their remarks chiefly to the question of the dead man's disguise suggesting reasons which they considered might have prompted him to disguise himself. They ended by deciding there was no reason to suppose that the suicide and the robbery had any bearing on each other. The run from Dieppe to Paris by express takes about three hours, and we were about halfway through the journey when Wollaston, who had been absent at least half an hour, re-entered our compartment in conversation with my travelling companion, whom I now knew to be Lady Fitzgraham. She hardly acknowledged my look of recognition, and out of the tail of my eye I saw Connie Stapleton glance quickly at each of us in turn, as though Lady Fitzgraham's unmistakable stiffness surprised her. Now the train was running at high speed across the flat, uninteresting stretch of country which lies about thirty miles south of Rawl. Presently the Seine came into view, and for some miles we ran parallel with it. We had just rushed through a little wayside station beyond Mont the train oscillating so severely as it rattled over the points that Dulcie, Connie Stapleton, and Lady Fitzgraham became seriously alarmed, while other occupants of the car glanced apprehensively out of the windows. "'This car wants coupling up,' Gastrell exclaimed suddenly. "'At our next stopping place I'll complain and get it done.' The words had scarcely passed his lips when the swaying increased considerably. All at once the brakes were applied with great force, the train began to slacken speed, and a moment later we knew that we had left the metals. To this day it seems extraordinary that any of us should have escaped with our lives. We probably should have not done so had the land not been on a dead level with the rails at the point where the train jumped the track. As a result the cars did not telescope as is usual on such occasions, nor did they capsize. Instead the locomotive dashed forward over the flat, hard, frozen meadow dragging the cars behind it, then came gradually to a standstill owing to the steam having been shut off. My first thought as soon as the train had stopped was for Dulcie. As I crawled along the car, for we had all been flung on to the ground, I came upon her suddenly. Pale as death and trembling terribly she stared at me with a scared expression, and so great was the wave of emotion which swept over me at that instant that I all but forgot my disguise in my wild longing to spring forward and take her in my arms and comfort her. "'Are you hurt?' I gasped, retaining only with the utmost difficulty the artificial tone I had adopted from the first, the tone poor Preston had coached me in, until my accents, so he had assured me, 
exactly resembled those of Sir Aubrey Belston. No, no, came her answer in a weak voice, only shaken, but oh, the thirst this shock has given me is fearful. Is there anything I can drink? I looked about me. On all sides was a litter of hand-baggage that the accident had hurled pell-mell about the car. Beside me was a large dressing-bag lying on its side, partly open, the force of the blow as it was flung up against the woodwork having burst the lock. Thinking there might be something in it that I could give to Dulcie to relieve her burning thirst, I set the bag upright and pulled it wide open. As my gaze rested upon the contents of that bag, astonishment made me catch my breath for the bag was filled with jewelry of all descriptions jumbled up as if it had been tossed in anyhow there had been no attempted at packing during the brief moments which elapsed before i shut the bag i noticed rings brooches bracelets scarf pins watches hair combs and three large tiaras all of them apparently set in precious stones mostly emeralds rubies and diamonds Hastily closing the bag and fastening the clips to keep it shut, I left it where I had found it, and was about to go in search of water when the sight I saw made my heart nearly stop beating. For at the end of the car, standing motionless, and looking straight at me, was Alphonse Furneaux. Almost as I returned his dull gaze the truth seemed to drift into my brain. Furneaux must have escaped from Preston's house from the room where Preston had confined him. He must have discovered that Preston was impersonating him. He must have followed him from London, followed him onto the boat. I dared not let my thoughts travel further. Horrible suspicions crowded in upon me. Could the man standing there staring at me be Preston's murderer? Was he aware of my identity, too? And if so, had he designs upon my life as well? Had he told the gang I was now mixed up with of my disguise, and had they entrapped me in order to wreak vengeance, and that hoard of jewelry I had so unwittingly discovered, had the man now standing there before me seen me looking at it? End of chapter 21 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com